0: Well, um, particularly warm welcome if you are here for the first time. Let me just give you a bit of a recap as to where we were last week. Um, We looked at Abraham and God's promises to Abraham. We were in Genesis 12 12 and 15 and looked at those promises. Um, God made promises to Abraham and committed to those promises because he knew that Abraham couldn't keep them. They're a promise of a people, many descendants of Abraham. They're a promise for God's people to have a land of their own. And there was a promise that that people and land would would have blessing from God. And do you remember God commits to that promise? Do you remember how he did it? Those cut animals cut in half. That's how they would have had a handshake at the time. Normally, both parties would walk through the cut up animals as a sign that they'd keep the covenant. But instead, we saw that only God went through the cut animals because God was committing that he would keep his promises despite Abraham not being able to. So only God goes through the cut animals. And so off the back of last week, what we do is we're waiting to see how it is that God will fulfill his promises. And I wonder if you noticed last week, there are promises of restoral in Eden five weeks ago as we looked at the beginning of the Bible there were people that were God's own people in the land under God's blessing and so God in his promises to Abraham is beginning to bring that background but let's have a look at where we're up to so far there's a family tree coming up there's been problems all along the way since Abraham see straight away the promise seems to fall flat Abraham's wife Sarah is barren she doesn't seem able to have a child how is it that God will bring about these promises but then after time God blesses them with a child she has Isaac Isaac and Rebecca have Esau and Jacob Jacob's the younger son he's a deceiver the one you'd not expect to have the blessing but he's blessed and so we're asking God how is it that you go on blessing your people when they don't deserve it then Joseph, Jacob's son, is sold as a slave, and his brothers tell his dad that he's dead. Wonder you might remember that story. They they're jealous that Joseph's the favorite one. He's got the coat, so they sell him into slavery and he goes to Egypt. But God blesses Joseph and uses him as prime minister in Egypt. There's then there's a famine across the whole land. But Joseph is gracious to the rest of his family, even the brothers that gave him up to slavery. Joseph welcomes them and Jacob back in, a party of 70 back into um, Egypt to escape the famine, to survive. So we come round to Exodus. 400 years have passed and the Israelites have been fruitful in the land. See, God is remaining faithful to his promises even in the unlikely circumstances god is faithful to his promise and so exodus chapter 1 verse 8 says this it's a it's an update as where things are between joseph and the king of egypt now there arose a new king over egypt who did not know joseph and he said to his people behold The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. That's the climate at the beginning of Exodus. God's people seem to be in real trouble, they're a threat. And that's the climate to which Moses is born, the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham into a climate where the new Israelite boys are killed. (coughs) From that odd setup where we are constantly asking, how is it God will stay faithful to his promises? God raises up Moses. But you notice as we've looked through that line, there's that repeated theme that we saw even to Abraham last week the failure of the people and the faithfulness of God. The failure of the people and the faithfulness of God. And you see, as Joseph welcomes his brothers back into Egypt, this is what he says at the end of Genesis, Genesis 50. He says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, despite the circumstances, God is at work. The circumstances look bleak for the Israelite people. They're in slavery to the Egyptians. It's been hard work getting there. And now the taskmaster of Pharaoh seems overpowering. But God is at work. But there's no doubt God's people are in need of rescue they're in slavery it's 400 years later and god's promised line are suffering abraham's promises must have seemed long gone this is what exodus two twenty three says and the people of israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help <coughs> their cry for rescue from slavery came up to god and god heard their groaning and god remembered the covenant with abraham with Isaac and with Jacob, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And God knew the oppressive power of the Egyptians might have looked great, but God knew the promise of people, land and blessing he hadn't forgotten. God knew. And so that's the context to which we read about the plagues. That's the context to which we read about the Passover today. The context that well exodus 6 says this then the lord said to moses now you will see that i will do what i will do to pharaoh because of my mighty hand he will let them go because of my mighty hand he will drive them out of his country see god has not forgotten his people god has not forgotten his promises if you've seen the prince of egypt then you'll have recognised it being, play, being played as we were reading. Um, that dynamic, as you hear the song, Let My People Go, the dynamic between um, Moses and Pharaoh, is brilliantly brought out in the film. If you haven't seen it, go and watch it, because after today, hopefully, watching it again will be a brilliant refresher. God's people need rescue from the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. See, we see God's method for their deliverance, the plagues that you might be very familiar with if you've watched um, The Prince of Egypt or if you scan through from Exodus 7. Here they are, the 10 plagues, water to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, death of livestock, boils, hails, locusts, darkness, and then the death of the firstborn. See, these plagues show us The reality of God's judgment. God is delivering his people. But one thing that it shows the Israelite people that, remember, are moaning and groaning, they want God to act, is that God's judgment is even more severe than the oppressive power of the Egyptians. God's judgment as we look at them ten plagues is even more severe than the oppressive power of the Egyptians. Because God's people need rescue from God's judgment too. We've seen already as we've looked through the last five weeks, God's judgment is fierce. It's real. It's necessary and it's deserved. It was deserved by those in the days of Noah whose wickedness had come up before the Lord. It was deserved by the Egyptians who were oppressive to the Israelites. It was deserved by the Israelites who were moaning and groaning. It was deserved by the Israelites who naturally had stubborn and rebellious hearts against God. And it's deserved by us, who just like the people in the days of Noah, have hearts that are naturally inclined to wickedness. Naturally inclined to serve ourselves and reject God out of the picture. to promote our own desires and thoughts above his, to reject God of the right place in our life. God's people are in need of rescue from the result of rebellion against God. Just have a look down at verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, I am the Lord. See what the judgment is on? See who dies is every firstborn. The judgment isn't just against Pharaoh. Anyone who sets themselves up against God is worthy of judgment. The judgment is total. Look at verse 30. Have a look down. And there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead what a petrifying scene (coughs) sometimes we only think that judgment is just against pharaoh it's just against the really evil people of this world but as later it's commentated on Here in Deuteronomy, just listen to this about what it says. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on the account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of the land, but on the account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Time and time again, we've seen already God's people are in desperate need of rescue. There's nothing about them worthy of that rescue. For the Israelites, their state as a nation in slavery to Egypt meant it was already so clear they were just completely dependent. There was nothing that they could do. Can you imagine being in slavery like that? And the plagues roll in, middle of the day, thousand frogs. Can you imagine how much that has shown you could do nothing about your own situation? There was nothing they could do. And do you know what? It's exactly the same for us we're in desperate need of God's rescue plan. God's judgment is what we deserve, but God in his great mercy provides great rescue too. Do you recognize how dependent you are for God's rescue? Not just the circumstances of life, like slavery, but from the rebellion against him, from God's right anger. The magnitude of God's anger at sin there as we look at the the plagues as what we see in Exodus, it should make us realize how dependent we too are on God's rescue. I don't know if you've seen the program, American program called Prison Break. Um, It tracks the um, story of Michael Schofield, this man who breaks in, well, who gets convicted of a crime purely on the basis that he wants to break out his brother, Lincoln Burroughs. Lincoln Burroughs has been wrongly convicted. And so Michael breaks in, goes into the prison purely to break him out. Now, Michael, um, as you can work out probably from that picture, is a slightly intriguing man. He um, works out the prison system. He gets um, all of the details to the prison. Um, He does a long study on what's going on. He gets tattooed on his body, the prints for the prison, so that when he gets inside, he can do just what it takes to get his brother out. Now, Prison Break, the program, tracks the relationships, the dynamic of him breaking out his brother and a team out of the prison. Now, what's brilliant about the program is in every episode, you're just left going, what's he got in store? What is the plan? Because it's absolutely clear all the way through, prison break is the initiative of Michael Schofield. Prison break is the plan of Michael Schofield. He goes into the prison and it's all on him. Episode in, episode out, him. we as watchers and other members of the team that are breaking out are just left in moments as they kind of pan into Michael's face. Left asking the question, What's he got planned? What's he going to do now? See, prison break is Michael's initiative. It's Michael's plan. It comes about by his provision. He'll be the one to execute the plan. He'll be the one to break out his brother. When we look at the Exodus, when we look here at Exodus 12, God's people are rescued by God's Passover initiative. Just look at verse three. Have a look down. It's God talking to Moses and Aaron, telling them to tell the people. Can you imagine? God's gathered Moses and Aaron. He's saying, this is what you've got to do. This is the plan. This is how it's going to work out. And you are responsible to gathering the people and telling them how it's going to work out. Look at verse three. Every house must take a lamb. Verse 6, kill that lamb at twilight. Verse 7, put the blood on the doorposts. Verse 8, eat the flesh that night. Verse 12, God will pass through the land and strike down the firstborn. Verse 13, the blood will be a sign and God will pass over. See, down to every detail, God makes this rescue plan. What do God's people do? Well, God's people are rescued by being marked out as God's people. It's not their initiative. It's not their power. It's not their plan. It's not them that does anything about being saved from this plague. It's God's initiative, God's design, God's power. All they can do is trust this plan and trust in God's word for deliverance. They were marked out by being ones that would trust in God's word. Can you imagine? Literally you're physically marking yourself out in the town, putting the blood on the door, to listen to God's word and believe that it is true would mark them out as God's people. See the similarity? To remember Noah? What did Noah do? It was not good, but he listened to God's words. And it marked him out. He was different to the people around him. Trusting in God's word will mark people out. There'll be a difference of opinion about what God's word is, whether it's true. But here, it's God's word that delivers. It's God's word that rescues the people. That's why here at Town Church... We think it's so important that we make God's word front and centre. It's a key value that we prioritise God's word. We want to be marked out as a church, as a people that listen to what God has to say. I wonder if someone would say that about you. Are you marked out as someone who listens to God's word? (coughs) Do you read it? Does it guide your decisions? Do you know what it says? Do you remember it? God's people are rescued from God's judgment. It's his initiative. It's his plan. God's people are rescued by the substitute of blood. That's the mechanism, the blood on the doorpost. Can you just imagine waiting that night? Can you imagine fathers, mothers in the room of a firstborn son, maybe a few firstborn sons in the room. Can you imagine sitting around in the house that night looking at the firstborn son, being the firstborn son, desperately trusting that that blood on the doorframe is enough to save, recognising that In that moment, they could do nothing, absolutely nothing, but trust that God's word to them was true. We've seen God always acts consistently with his character. There must be punishment. Blood must be spilt. As we look further on into the story, the blood is ultimately spilled by the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world this moment point towards the ultimate rescue of God's people. We can be spared God's judgment by trusting in Jesus's blood. We will stand before God in judgment. We will we'll stand before him face to face. And in that moment, the only way that God's judgment will pass over us is if we trust in Jesus's blood in our place is if Jesus' blood is enough to pay our debt. That's God's initiative, God's design and God's power that we might accept the truth about Jesus. We've got no claim on it whatsoever. Do you know, there's nothing about you that deserves that rescue, that deserves Jesus' rescue. I'm not good enough to keep those promises. But he can. Sometimes that's a call to remember that we're not good enough to trust that we can sit in a corner of a room and say, Jesus' blood alone is the only thing that can save me. We're completely dependent on him. As we look at God's initiative to these people we've got to ask ourselves the question are we completely reliant on God's initiative to us Jesus the substitute of blood alone for rescue from God's judgment remember Noah not righteous because he was good remember Abraham not righteous because he was good the Israelites not righteous because they were good They're righteous because they trusted in God's promise. See, we can be declared righteous now and shown to be righteous in that moment when we stand before God only if we trust in God's promise that ultimately Jesus' righteous position is mine through the spilling of blood. This is what 1 Peter says. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, And so your faith and hope are in God. Jesus died on the cross as God's ultimate Passover lamb. God's ultimate initiative to rescue his people. It's a substitution on offer to us, his blood for mine. Is that you today? Can I just ask you, if you've never accepted that substitution, his blood for yours will you? Will you go away today and consider it? Like the Israelites at midnight, completely dependent on that blood. God's people are rescued by his initiative. They're marked out to be his people and they're rescued from judgment by the substitution of blood. But they're rescued to enter a land. Have a look at verse 25 when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised observe this ceremony this is part of God's work to go about fulfilling his promises the whole purpose of the rescue is to show what God is like he's faithful to his promises and the ceremony that they're to remember is to remind them of that very thing they're to remember that night that God is faithful to his promises. They're rescued to go to a land. They're rescued to be a people, a people of God and to be known as a people of God. Look down to verse 31. This is when Pharaoh ultimately relents and gives them up. Verse 31, during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, oh, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord of you as you have requested. See, God delivers on his promise. God is taking the Israelites to a new land and in that moment, in that moment as pharaoh says go what does he say look go and worship the lord as you've requested they're released to be a people known to be god's people that's for us too what we're released to be we're released to serve god to worship him to give him glory And they're released to experience God's blessing. Just have a look down to verse 50. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. That's what happened. God delivered on his promise. Sometimes we think that the Exodus, we look at it and we think it's amazing what God God did in those 10 plagues. The power is amazing. It's amazing that he rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But God is concerned with revealing his character. Those Israelites, as they went into the new land, as they remembered that night, I'm convinced. They said, look at our Lord. Look at our God who rescues us. Not the signs, not the miracles, but look at our God." See, as we follow through the unfolding story that we're looking at, one book, one story, and we see how God is working to ultimately deliver his people, we see the development through different stages, but they each ultimately point forward. They point forward to a time where those three promises, land, people and blessing, will be delivered on ultimately. Ultimately. But what we see as God works is that God is unchanging and is worthy of praise all the way through. Even now, as we see God's rescue plan come to fulfilment in Jesus, even now that causes us to say how great is our God and long for the day that ultimately we might be God's people in God's place under God's blessing with no threat whatsoever. But what we see is just how great our God is, how great that rescue is by our God that we might be as people. So we're going to sing in a minute. We're going to sing. He's our rescuer as we look and sing and reflect on this rescue plan for God's people. But let me pray. Father God, thank you so much that your rescue plan is your initiative, that it's not mine. It's not the initiative of any person sat before me. It's not the initiative of anyone but you. And Lord, we can trust that you will deliver, that you will mark out your people, and you will rescue by the substitute of blood. Father, thank you that you are our great rescuer. Amen.